Book the Third, Part Two of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Third, Part Two. Meanwhile, Paula was alone. Of anyone else, it would have been said that she must be finding the afternoon rather dreary in the quaint halls, not of her forefathers. But of Miss Power, it was unsafe to predicate so surely. She walked from room to room in a black velvet dress, which gave decision to her outline without depriving it of softness. She occasionally clasped her hands behind her head and looked out of a window. But she more particularly bent her footsteps up and down the long gallery, where she had caused a large fire of logs to be kindled, in her endeavour to extend cheerfulness somewhat beyond the precincts of the sitting-rooms. The fire glanced up on Paula, and Paula glanced down at the fire, and at the gnarled beech fuel, and at the wood-lice which ran out from beneath the bark to the extremity of the logs as the heat approached them. The low-down ruddy light spread over the dark floor like the setting sun over a moor, fluttering on the grotesque countenances of the bright andirons, and touching all the furniture on the underside. She now and then crossed to one of the deep embrasures of the windows, to decipher some sentence from a letter she held in her hand. The daylight would have been more than sufficient for any bystander to discern that the capitals in that letter were of the peculiar semi-Gothic type affected at the time by Somerset and other young architects of his school in their epistolary correspondence. She was very possibly thinking of him, even when not reading his letter, for the expression of softness with which she perused the page was more or less with her when she appeared to examine other things. She walked about for a little time longer, then put away the letter, looked at the clock, and thence returned to the windows, straining her eyes over the landscape without, as she murmured, I wish Charlotte was not so long coming. As Charlotte continued to keep away, Paula became less reasonable in her desires, and proceeded to wish that Somerset would arrive, then that anybody would come, then walking towards the portraits on the wall, she flippantly asked one of those cavaliers to oblige her fancy for company by stepping down from his frame. Temerity of her request led her to prudently withdraw it almost as soon as conceived. Old paintings had been said to play queer tricks in extreme cases, and the shadows this afternoon were funereal enough for anything in the shape of revenge on an intruder who embodied the antagonistic modern spirit to such an extent as she. However, Paula still stood before the picture which had attracted her, and this, by a coincidence common enough in fact, though scarcely credited in chronicles, happened to be that one of the seventeenth-century portraits of which de Stancy had studied the engraved copy at Myrtle Villa the same morning. While she remained before the picture, wondering her favourite wonder, how would she feel if this and its accompanying canvases were pictures of her own ancestors? He was surprised by a light footstep upon the carpet which covered part of the room, and turning quickly, she beheld the smiling little figure of Charlotte de Stancy. "'What has made you so late?' said Paula. "'You have come to stay, of course.' Charlotte said she had come to stay. "'But I have brought somebody with me.' "'Ah, whom?' "'My brother happened to be at home, and I have brought him.' Mr. Stancy's brother had been so continuously absent from home in India, or elsewhere, so little spoken of, and, when spoken of, 
so truly though unconsciously represented as one whose interests lay wholly outside this antiquated neighbourhood, that to Paula he'd been a mere nebulosity whom she'd never distinctly outlined. To have him thus cohere into substance at a moment's notice lent him the novelty of a new creation. "'Is he in the drawing-room?' said Paula in a low voice. "'No, he's here. He would follow me. I hope you will forgive him.' And then Paula saw emerge into the red beams of the dancing fire, from behind a half-drawn hanging which screened the door, the military gentleman whose acquaintance the reader has already made. "'You know the house, doubtless, Captain de Stancy? said Paula, somewhat shyly, when he had been presented to her. "'I have never seen the inside since I was three weeks old,' replied the artillery officer gracefully, "'and hence my recollections of it are not remarkably distinct. "'A year or two before I was born, the entail was cut off by my father and grandfather, "'so that I saw the venerable place only to lose it. "'At least I believe that's the truth of the case. "'But my knowledge of the transaction is not profound, "'and it is a delicate point on which to question one's father.' Paula assented, and looked at the interesting and noble figure of the man whose parents had seemingly righted themselves at the expense of wronging him. "'The pictures and furniture were sold about the same time, I think,' said Charlotte. "'Yes,' murmured Distancy. "'They went in a mad bargain of my father with his visitor as they sat over their wine. My father sat down as host on that occasion, and arose as guest.' He seemed to speak with such a courteous absence of regret for the alienation that Paula, who was always fearing that the recollection would rise as a painful shadow between herself and the Distances, felt reassured by his magnanimity. Distancy looked with interest round the gallery, seeing which Paula said she would have lights brought in a moment. No, please not, said Distancy. The room and ourselves are of so much more interesting a colour by this light. As they moved hither and thither, the various expressions of Distancy's face made themselves picturesquely visible in the unsteady shine of the blaze. In a short time he had drawn near to the painting of the ancestor whom he so greatly resembled. When her quick eye noted the speck on the face, indicative of inherited traits strongly pronounced, a new and romantic feeling that the Distancy's had stretched out a tentacle from their genealogical tree to seize her by the hand and draw her into their mass, took possession of Paula. As has been said, the Distances were a family on whom the hallmark of membership was deeply stamped, and by the present light the representative under the portrait and the representatives in the portraits seemed beings not far removed. Paula was continually starting from a reverie and speaking irrelevantly, as if such reflections as those seized hold of her in spite of her natural unconcern. When candles were brought in, Captain de Stancy ardently contrived to make the pictures the theme of conversation. From the nearest they went to the next, whereupon Paula, as hostess, took up one of the candlesticks and held it aloft to light up the painting. The candlestick being tall and heavy, de Stancy relieved her of it, and, taking another candle in the other hand, he imperceptibly slid into the position of exhibitor rather than spectator. Thus he walked in advance, holding the two candles on high, his shadow forming a gigantic figure on the neighbouring wall, while he recited the particulars of family history pertaining to each portrait that he had learnt up with such eager persistence during the previous four-and-twenty hours. 
I have often wondered what could have been the history of this lady, but nobody has ever been able to tell me, Paul observed, pointing to a Van Dyke, which represented a beautiful woman wearing curls across her forehead, a square-cut bodice, and a heavy pearl necklace upon the smooth expanse of her neck. I don't think anybody knows, Charlotte said. Oh, yes, replied her brother promptly, seeing with enthusiasm that it was yet another opportunity for making capital of his acquired knowledge, with which he felt himself as inconveniently crammed as a candidate for a government examination. That lady has been largely celebrated under a fancy name, though she is comparatively little known by her own. Her parents were the chief ornaments of the almost irreproachable court of Charles I, and were not more distinguished by their politeness and honour than by the affections and virtues which constitute the great charm of private life. The stock verbiage of the family memoir was somewhat apparent in this effusion, but it much impressed his listeners, and he went on to point out that from the lady's necklace was suspended a heart-shaped portrait, that of the man who broke his heart by her persistent refusal to encourage his suit. Miss Tancy then led them a little further, where hung a portrait of the lover, one of his own family, who appeared in full panoply of plate mail, the pommel of his sword standing up under his elbow. The gallant captain then related how this personage of his line wooed the lady fruitlessly, how, after her marriage with another, she and her husband visited the parents of the disappointed lover, the then occupiers of the castle, how, in a fit of desperation at the sight of her, he retired to his room, where he composed some passionate verses, which he wrote with his own blood, and after directing them to her, ran himself through the body with his sword. Too late the lady's heart was touched by his devotion. She was ever after a melancholy woman, and wore his portrait despite her husband's prohibition. This, continued de Stancy, leading them through the doorway into the hall where the coats of mail were arranged along the wall, and stopping opposite a suit which bore some resemblance to that of the portrait, this is his armour, as you will perceive by comparing it with the picture, and this is the sword with which he did the rash deed. What unreasonable devotion, said Paula practically. It was too romantic of him. She was not worthy of such a sacrifice. He also is one whom they say you resemble a little in feature, I think, said Charlotte. Do they? replied Stancy. I wonder if it's true. He set down the candles, and, asking the girls to withdraw for a moment, was inside the upper part of the suit of armour in incredibly quick time. Going then, and placing himself in front of a low-hanging painting near the original, so as to be enclosed by the frame, while covering the figure, arranging the sword as in the one above, and setting the light that it might fall in the right direction, he recalled them. When he put the question, Is the resemblance strong? He looked so much like a man of bygone times that neither of them replied, but remained curiously gazing at him. His modern and comparatively sallow complexion, as seen through the open visor, lent an ethereal ideality to his appearance, which the time-stained countenance of the original warrior totally lacked. At last Paula spoke, so stilly that she seemed a statue enunciating. Are the verses known that he wrote with his blood? Oh, yes, they have been carefully preserved. Captain de Stancy, with true wooer's instinct, 
had committed some of them to memory that morning from the printed copy to be found in every well-ordered library. "'I fear I don't remember them all,' he said, "'but they begin in this way. "'From one that dieth in his discontent, "'dear fair, receive this greeting to thee sent, "'and till as oft as it is read by thee, "'then with some deep sad sigh remember me. "'Oh, t'was my fortune's error to vow duty, "'to one that bears defiance in her beauty. "'Sweet poison, precious woo, infectious jewel, "'such is a lady that is fair and cruel. "'How well could I, with air chameleon-like, "'live happy and still gazing on thy cheek?' In which forsaken man methink I see How goodly love doth threaten cares to me. Why dost thou frown thus on a kneeling soul Whose faults in love thou mayest as well control? In love, but oh that word, that word I fear, Is hateful still both to thy heart and ear. Lady, in brief my fate doth now intend The period of my days to have an end. Waste not on me thy pity, precious fair. Rest you in much content, I in despair. A solemn silence followed the close of the recital, which Lestancy improved by turning the point of the sword to his breast, resting the pommel upon the floor and saying, After writing that, we may picture him turning this same sword in this same way and falling on it thus. He inclined his body forward as he spoke. "'Don't, Captain de Santy, please don't,' cried Paula involuntarily. "'No, don't show us any further, William,' said his sister. "'It is too tragic.' De Santy put away the sword, himself rather excited, not, however, by his own recital, but by the direct gaze of Paula at him. This protean quality of de Stancy's, by means of which he could assume the shape and situation of almost any ancestor at will, had impressed her and he perceived it with a throb of fervour. But it had done no more than impress her, for though in delivering the lines he had so fixed his look upon her as to suggest, to any maiden practised in the game of the eyes, a present significance in the words, the idea of any such arrière-pensée had by no means commended itself to her soul. At this time a messenger from Markton Barracks arrived at the castle in which to speak to Captain de Stancy in the hall. Begging the two ladies to excuse him for a moment, he went out. While de Stancy was talking in the twilight to the messenger at one end of the apartment, some other arrival was shown in by the side door, and in making his way after the conference across the hall to the room he had previously quitted, de Stancy encountered the newcomer. There was just enough light to reveal the countenance to be Dares. He bore a portfolio under his arm, and had begun to wear a moustache, in case the chief constable should meet him anywhere in his rambles, and be struck by his resemblance to the man in the studio. "'What the devil are you doing here?' said Captain de Stancy, in tones he had never before used to the young man. There started back in surprise, and naturally so. De Stancy, having adopted a new system of living, and relinquished the meagre diet and elevating waters of his past years, was rapidly recovering tone. His voice was firmer, his cheeks were less pallid, and above all he was authoritative towards his present companion, 
whose ingenuity in vamping up a being for his ambitious experiments seemed about to be rewarded, like Frankenstein's, by his discomfiture of the hands of his own creature. "'What the devil are you doing here, I say?' repeated de Stancy. "'You can talk to me like that, after my working so hard to get you on in life and make a rising man of you,' expostulated Dare, as one who felt himself no longer the leader in this enterprise. "'But,' said the captain less harshly, "'if you let them discover any relations between us here, "'you will ruin the fairest prospects man ever had.' "'Oh, I like that, Captain, when you owe all of it to me.' "'That's too cool, Will. "'No, what I say is true. "'However, let that go. "'So now you are here on a call. "'But how are you going to get here often enough to win her "'before the other man comes back? "'You don't see her every day, twice, three times a day.' You will not capture her in the time. I must think of that, said de Stancy. There is only one way of being constantly here. You must come to copy the pictures or furniture, something in the way he did. I'll think of it, muttered de Stancy hastily, as he heard the voices of the ladies, whom he hastened to join as they were appearing at the other end of the room. His countenance was gloomy as he recrossed the hall. Adair's words on the shortness of his opportunities had impressed him. Almost at once he uttered a hope to Paula that he might have further chance of studying, and if possible of copying, some of the ancestral faces with which the bling abounded. Meanwhile, Dare had come forward with his portfolio, which proved to be full of photographs. While Paula and Charlotte were examining them, he said to de Stancy, as a stranger, "'Excuse my interruption, sir, but if you should think of copying any of the portraits, "'as you were stating just now to the ladies, "'my patent photographic process is at your service, "'and is, I believe, the only one which would be effectual in the dim indoor lights.' "'It is just what I was thinking of,' said de Stancy, "'now so far cooled down from his irritation "'as to be quite ready to accept Dare's adroitly suggested scheme. "'On application to Paula,' She immediately gave to Stancy permission to photograph to any extent, and told Dare he might bring his instruments as soon as to Captain de Stancy required them. "'Don't stare at her in such a brazen way,' whispered the latter to the young man, when Paula had withdrawn a few steps. "'Say, I shall highly value the privilege of assisting Captain de Stancy in such a work.' Dare obeyed and before leaving de Stancy, arranged to begin performing on his venerated forefathers the next morning. The youth, so accidentally engaged, agreed to be there at the same time, to assist in the technical operations. End of Book the Third, Part Two